chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. The jet setter's dream, it was the de Havilland Comet. After World War II had ended, I started to fade from public consciousness. Sir Frank Whittle's amazing little jet engine was powering more than just fighter planes, and the dream of merging that technology with commercial airliners was finally realised in 1952, when the de Havilland Comet essentially took to the skies. The Comet, as an airplane went, was the fastest in the world for commercial air travel and could carry a total of 42 passengers and crew and it flew at 740 kilometres an hour, making it nearly twice as fast as its nearest competitor with uh, rapid uh, ascent and descent times to cruising altitudes and on shorter hops, it halved the travel time between locations compared to the fastest propeller-powered planes that were in service at the time. Now, the Comet's actual designation was the DH-106, and it was designed and built by the de Havilland Company in Britain. And between the Comet 1 and 1A, a total of 22 were manufactured. Not big numbers. The British Overseas Airways Corporation owned more than any other airline at the time, and there were eight of them in regular service for BOAC in early 1954. The Comet had four Halford H2 Ghost jet engines. They were subsequently referred to as the de Havilland Ghost 50 Mark 1s. The design of the plane was revolutionary at the time in many respects and included some unusual features for that time that have since become pretty standard. Uh, swept wing leading edge, uh, integral wing fuel tanks and uh, a four-wheeled bogey undercarriage units. But uh, the requirements for the engines were so radically different to any other manufacturer at the time that de Havilland had to design and construct their own jet engines for the Comet. Key areas of the fuselage were both chemically bonded, let's call that glue, shall we, and uh, they were riveted as well for additional strength. It had a cruising altitude of 42,000 feet or 13,000 metres and weighed 50 tonnes. The Comets epitomised luxury and... uh, As you'd expect for the price, for example, a ticket from New York to London would cost $2,500 or up to £3,000 one way. And in today's money, that's today's money, but it was £173 at the time. That was for the top-end ticket, the deluxe class. So that's a bit about the Comet. But what went wrong? The flight number that we're going to start with is 781 because there wasn't just one problem with the Comet. In 1954, Saturday, January the 10th, 1954, uh, Flight 781 from Singapore to London had stopped over in Rome. The pre-flight checks for the, all the aeroplanes include visual inspection for obvious signs of any damage to the, to the outside of the, uh, of the fuselage and wings, engines, everything. And on that morning, there were no visible signs of any damage or anything out of the ordinary. It passed with flying colours and was allowed to depart. There were 29 passengers and 6 crew members on Flight 781. Since the Comet 1 had entered service about 20 months prior to that date, 
There'd been two accidents and a total of 54 lives lost. However, it had been about 18 months since the last accident and with pilot error and poor weather being blamed for those incidents, there's no expectation that anything else was wrong with the aircraft itself at that point. Shortly after takeoff and during a conversation between the pilot of the Comet and the pilot of another bike flight, the Comet pilot was cut off abruptly mid-sentence, just before 11am local time. The control tower in Rome was unable to contact or locate the Comet after from that point. They were 200 kilometres northwest of Rome, on the island of Elba. Some fishermen witnessed the flaming wreckage of the comet falling from the sky into the ocean, just offshore. A half an hour, uh, sorry, an hour and a half later in London, the boards indicated that the flight initially was delayed, and then all evidence of the flight was completely removed from the flight boards. All 35 passengers and crew had died. At that time, it was the most technologically advanced plane in the world. And immediately following the accident, Boeing temporarily withdrew its fleet of comets from service and had de Havilland begin stripping their fleet of comet aircraft looking for any possible common cause of the incident. Shortly after, both Air France and Union Aero Maritime de Transport also grounded their comets. Boeing consulted with the transport minister in Britain at the time, and that was Alan Lennox Boyd. But they were careful not to call it a grounding, and technically it was a company-initiated move, and, they, and it wasn't government-ordered. They also took very care, great care not to call it a grounding of the comments at the time. That decision was costing Boeck about £50,000 in money of, of money every week at the time. Now, that's £1.26 million in today's money and at current exchange rates, that's US$1.86 million US dollars every week that their fleet of comets were grounded. That's a lot of money to be losing. At this time, there's no established protocol for air crash investigations and ultimately, this incident and what would unfold afterwards would become a crucial turning point in the history of aviation. Just imagine this, there were no flight data recorders. There were no cockpit voice recorders, no black boxes, no transponders, nothing at all. There was only the wreckage to go by, and that's if you could find it. Winston Churchill became involved in reviewing the investigation, and so concerned was he with discovering the truth about the incident, he dispatched the British Navy to scour the ocean floor in the area to salvage as much of the wreckage as they could. On February the 12th, or a month after the crash, they found the first part of the wreckage, and in subsequent weeks, more pieces were found until finally a large section of the rear fuselage was located. March the 23rd, just 10 weeks after the fleet was quote-unquote grounded and under intense pressure from the Bo- from BOAC, the go-ahead was given to return the comets to service by BOAC management. 16 days after the fleet was cleared to fly again, South African Airways Flight 201 departed Rome bound for Egypt. 33 minutes into the flight, the final message from the pilot came through as they climbed through 11,000 metres and they were never heard from again. All 21 people on board that 
plane died. Only a fortnight after they resumed service and the fleet was grounded again. But this time, the airworthiness certificate was revoked until the cause of the incidents could be determined definitively. And the Boak fleet of comets were cocooned and stored till they could figure it out. The similarities between the two crashes was uncanny. They both departed Rome. Both even had the same ground crew inspecting the airplanes. Both planes crashed shortly after passing through around about 10,000 metres in altitude. The pattern of injuries of all the victims were consistent. They had fractured skulls just prior to death, with many ruptured or heavily damaged lungs. A series of injuries that no one had witnessed before didn't make any sense to the initial investigation. So the Royal Aircraft Establishment was then assigned to the comet crashes to accelerate the investigations, chaired by Lord Cohen with the investigative team led by Sir Arnold Hall. The second plane, however, crashed in water that was about a kilometre deep, placing it out of range of the recovery operations of the era. So they only had the wreckage from the first crash to go by, although they did have bodies from both incidents. So in Farnborough, the January Comet crash wreckage was gradually being pieced together as more pieces were found. Personal belongings, which was somewhat of a surprise, the personal belongings from the front of the cabin were actually discovered, they were recovered from the rear of the wreckage. And that suggested a large explosion at the front of the aircraft. Whilst the wreckage from the April crash was irretrievable and the bodies were, their autopsies revealed near identical injuries to that of the first crash. So what was going on? The problem is when you're flying that high in the atmosphere, well, why would you want to fly at greater than 10,000 metres? So the problem with flying faster or wanting to fly faster is you need thrust without the drag. And the atmosphere that we're flying through, it also provides lift, of course, that's crucial, but it also provides drag. The higher you fly, the thinner the atmosphere, the less molecules of air you have to pass through, the less drag, and hence the faster that you can go. Propeller-driven planes can't go fast enough for this to be much of an issue, and many stay close to the ground, and even though the cabin pressure drops a fair bit as the planes climb to their cruising altitude, it's manageable. Pressurizing the fuselage, however, means the plane can fly higher because the occupants, the people, can handle the cabin pressure as it replicates the conditions you'll find close to the surface of the earth, surface air pressure, and that allows the planes to fly higher. Air up there is also a bit frosty, so you want to warm it up too. It was nice, I think, to have that in a propeller-driven aeroplane, but it was an absolute necessity in a jet, and the Comet was designed to fly at 13,000 metres, which is 42,000 feet. The human body can actually survive at an altitude of about 8,000 metres, 23,000 feet, which is pretty impressive. The study was uh, came up with a formula for acclimatisation by altitude, and what you do is you take the number of thousands of metres above sea level, and you multiply that by 11.4 days of exposure. So whilst the body can adapt to lower air pressures and oxygen concentrations at high altitudes, it takes very large amounts of time and there is an upper limit. And unfortunately, 
the jets flew well above that altitude. Hence, pressurization of that fuselage was essential. How did they do accident investigations in 1950? Well, they started by building a 1 to 10 model replica of the fuselage, built primarily out of perspex, and then they pressurized that model at flight conditions in a pressure chamber. Then they deliberately broke the seal of the fuselage near the front of the cabin area. They filmed the whole incident with a high-speed camera and the resulting rapid depressurization caused an explosion of the air rushing out the rupture point, tearing seats and passengers forwards and upwards into the roof of the fuselage. A rapid depressurization like that would also rupture people's lungs and that hence explained the injuries that the passengers had sustained. So what confused the engineers at de Havilland was that they tested the fuselage material extensively prior to the plane going into service and they estimated 10,000 flights as the minimum life expectancy based on their own testing. The design that de Havilland used was for a just slightly over 0.5 millimeter thick aluminium alloy as the skin that contained the pressurized cabin. The investigators decided that they needed to test that at real-world scale. So they constructed a water tank. It took them six weeks to build it, and it was especially built to perform pressurization tests because there was no other facility, no other test facility of that size available anywhere to them. The tank itself was 34 metres long, 7 metres wide, and 5 metres deep. They stripped the insides of one of the comets that had been grounded. They took all the chairs and fittings out, Then they inserted the entire plane with the wings protruding out the sides, but then they sealed around them so the water wouldn't leak. Then they filled the insides and the out with water. Then they gradually injected more water inside the fuselage to increase its pressure relative to the outside to simulate the plane taking off and then reaching cruising altitude and then, of course, descending again back to ground level. So they would hold it at that pressure for five minutes and then they would release it again. In addition, they had a series of interconnected hydraulic rams and they would flex the wings as though the plane was flying through turbulence to make it as realistic a test as possible. You've got to remember, this is 1950. There was no computer modeling. There were no computers. So this was really their only realistic option. The cycling tests ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But even at that rate, it was going to take a long time to really reach, to see if it would reach the 10,000 flight minimum life estimate. They estimated it would be between five or six months before they could reach that point. So, while all this was going on, the source of the rupture of Flight 781 was determined, based on the wreckage, to be somewhere between the cabin and the cockpit, and it was on the top part of the fuselage of the aircraft. However... On June the 24th, the water tank test exhibited a rupture after only a month of testing. The equivalence number of pressurization depressurization cycles was 3,057 flight equivalents. There were 1,221 actual cycles that that aircraft fuselage had already been subjected to in its year and a half of service. And there were 1,836 simulated cycles in the water tank to make up that total. When the investigators drained the tank, 
and inspected the fuselage, it showed a rather impressive two metre long and one metre deep tear line that followed the edges of the windows and the doors. So they had just found that the entire fleet and the design had a common failure mechanism and weak spot. So the failure mechanism, based on these test results and on the design and calculations that they could make, estimated, and of course based on the crash and simulation data, to be probable to occur anywhere between 1,000 and 9,000 pressure cycles, which is far less, far, far less in the worst case than the 10,000 that was originally suggested by de Havilland in their design. Flight 781's plane had completed 1,290 pressurised flights. Rather disturbingly, Flight 201's plane had experienced only 900. So what would cause such a significant failure and flaw in their design? To have not have been building planes for a long time. Some pressurised, some not, many not, but still. It came back to something called metal fatigue. But in order to actually trace it to that, they needed more evidence. And on August the 12th, a trawler gave them that evidence. When it accidentally snagged a piece of the wreckage and pulled it out of the ocean off the coast of Italy, they finally found the piece that contained the source, the definitive source of the rupture of Flight 781. And the source was a rivet hole. And that was at the low drag forward aperture around the ADF, that's the automatic direction finder, that failed due to fatigue stress. The ADF has a perspex shield because the entire fuselage is conductive and creates a Faraday cage. So your instrumentation needs to have a window, essentially, to see out. And the ADF needed that. It's common on pretty much a lot of the aeroplanes. So that fatigue stress, or metal fatigue... So what's metal fatigue and what causes it? First, when I learnt about metal fatigue in first year of uni, I thought it was fascinating. Still do. Metal, everyone looks at metal and thinks that it's very so strong. But metal is actually a crystalline structure. And one of the pro, there, there are several properties of metals. Two key ones are that it's malleable and that it's ductile. And its ductility and malleability varies from metal to metal. But there's one thing that's generally consistent. If we introduce impurities, we change the properties of the metal. And once we introduce impurities, it ceases to be a metal, a pure metal, and it becomes what we refer to as an alloy. Once we introduce those impurities and it becomes an alloy, it can become extremely durable and rigid. And the most commonly understood and well-known historical example is iron, which is the metal, and steel, which is the alloy. So iron itself is very soft. It's not that useful. But if we control exactly how much carbon impurities we add into it when it's molten, it changes the characteristics of the metal. You add a little bit, it becomes steel, and that can be worked and hardened, tempered. It adds a lot more if you add a lot more carbon to a certain point, it becomes cast iron, which is incredibly strong, but also very brittle if under high shock impact loads. Now, aluminium is no different. It works by preventing the same, the crystalline lattice structure from passing sliding atoms under stress. That's what gives it its rigidity. You imagine if you're pulling 
on a on a on a uh, like a a piece of thumbtack, wall tack, blue tack, whatever you want to call it, and it stretches. And you think metal under du- when you're drawing it ductile means you can draw it into a wire, and all of the atoms slide past each other gracefully almost, but eventually it breaks. But if you add these impurities as you try to pull the atoms apart, the dislocations that you're in- inserting into the metal get stuck essentially in <laughs> and the crystalline structure prevents them from continuing. And that's awesome, that's great, except they tend to build up. And essentially the more you stress the material, the more the the impurities can actually start to to build up around those locations. So if the dislocations are focused in a single area, they will accumulate, but if they're spread around a larger area, then that's not so bad. Unfortunately, though, all it takes is a weak spot. And if you essentially stress and de-stress that metal over and over and over again, then those dislocations have a common focal point. Eventually, you'll create a microfissure, eventually a crack. The design of the fuselage had called for a glued and drill-riveted fixing of the windows where they met the fuselage. For whatever reason, ultimately, they were punch-riveted. Now, I looked into the reports. I couldn't find the reason why. Whether this was a badly communicated design direction or a deviation from the design, I'm not sure. But either way, it's a practice that's fallen out of favor these days as our understanding of metallurgy has improved. When you punch-rivet something, you're essentially forcing the rivet through and it creates a very, very small series of micro-fractures in the metal structure and that can be the starting point for metal fatigue. It gives it that focal point, that slightly weaker point. Now, in addition to all of this that they've learned about uh, metal fatigue, when they were subsequently doing a test flight of the Comet without any passengers on board, they fitted strain gauges uh, to all of the windows and all of the external sections of the plane, and they took it up and down, you know, up to cruising altitude and back down again. Now, when they did this, they measured the amount of stress that was put on the windows and where that stress was, and they found that the windows, the maximum strain was about 70% of their maximum limit, which is really bad. You don't want to be going that high. 50% or less is good. Better safe than sorry. 70% way too close to the line. But the interesting thing beyond how high that number was, was where it was focused, The actual windows on the Comet 1 and 1A, they were actually square. Now, the interesting thing is that the maximum stress was at the square corner points of those windows, not the flat sides, but the corners. So, as a result of those findings directly, all windows in all aircraft since have been designed with rounded edged windows or oval or circular designs that provide a far better distributed load across the entire window edge. Now, having taken all of these lessons of things that went wrong, and now we know why it happened, four years later, a redesigned Comet was launched. Unfortunately for de Havilland, in the interim, Boeing and Douglas had overtaken them. They'd learned the lessons from the Comet's failure, 
and designed their new aeroplanes accordingly. Eventually, de Havilland were bought out by Hawker Siddeley and that merged with British Aerospace eventually in 1978 and then BAE subsequently closed in 1993. So what have we learned from all this? The Comet was a revolutionary design. It pushed the world forward into the jet age more so than any other plane. And it's easy to look back with the benefit of computer modelling, all that metallurgical knowledge and aircraft investigation developments over the last 62 years, and you can sort of ju- you feel like you can judge the stupidity of the design decisions made at the time. But that said, there's just one thing about the Comet that sticks in my mind. The company let the Comet fly again after Flight 781, and yet they had no idea what had caused the accident. You know, they had some 400 mechanics pouring all over all of the grounded comets looking for problems. On the 4th of February, not even a month after the 781 crash, the chairman of BOAC, Sir Miles Thomas, announced that there were going to be about 50 modifications that they determined should be performed on all of their comets, and then they'd be returned to service in March. But they had no idea at all if their modifications would fix what caused those incidents because they had no evidence as to what caused them. They just said, oh, well, it might have been this, so we'll fix that. Oh, it could have been that, well, we'll fix that. They didn't know. They were stabbing in the dark. They had no idea at all. And when the comet crashed again, Flight 201, the loss of those 21 people's lives was completely preventable. But, you know, money, right? Money? Great money. That's why. You know, thanks to the comets, we have better testing, better crash investigation. We got stricter controls by governing agencies the world over. We also have many methods of NDT. That's non-destructive testing for routine inspections, for fatigue cracks and aircraft all over the world. To me, though, it's horrible to think about the lives that it cost for us to reach that point. And I suppose if I was running BOAC, at the time, and had the financial financial pressures that they were feeling, you know, it it would have been a tough decision, no question, whether or not you would let those planes go back in the air. And I'd like to think, I'd I'd like to think I'd rather know exactly what caused those crashes before I gave them the light to go and fly again, rather than just signing them back into service, saying, yeah, we think we figured it out, but we're really not sure. See, if Boeck was going to go under because of the comets. Because it was a bad product, right? It, it was a bad design. It hadn't been tested properly. And if it had to cause the company to go under, then it was going to cause it to go under and so be it. You know, I'd rather have a company go under than to throw people's lives away because of financial pressure. Those extra 16 days of flying time that those comments achieved, well, they, they achieved nothing at all. It was a stupid pointless decision I suppose for me the ultimate lesson is you should not roll the dice again until you know what broke last time if you're enjoying causality and want to support the show you can like one of our backers Chris Stone he and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon and you can find it at patreon.com slash John Chigi all one word so if you'd like to contribute something anything at all it's very much appreciated Don't forget to also check out other great shows like Pragmatic, Nutrium, and a brand new show 
analytical. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgey. Thanks for listening. Thank you.